Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Oh, actually, I've been walking around the house singing this all day. I didn't I actually did not know that the producer McPants was going to open the show with it. Um, so that is the theme from the Avengers. And we will be beginning the nose today uh, with uh, a remembrance and an appreciation for Diana Rick, who left us this week. A little bit later, we will be talking about some equally canonical women, the Kardashians, who are ending the run of their flagship show. You know, we don't, we're not qualified to talk about the Kardashians, but we, we will in the spirit of being not qualified. And then we're probably going to be uh, focusing an awful lot of our energies today here on the nose uh, into talk, to talking about um, a, a movie by Charlie Kaufman, who I frequently and recklessly claim for West Hartford, Connecticut. I think he actually spent three years of his life as junior no, sophomore, junior, and senior years of high school uh, in, in West Hartford. But that's good enough. We can claim somebody that way. Uh, it's called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It has, if nothing else, just a tremendous cast. Uh, and I'm not even 100% sure what our panel is going to be saying about it. I kind of think I know what I'm going to be saying about it. Anyway, all of that is to come. But when I say we and when I say panel and things like that, when I throw these terms around, what, what do I mean? Well, uh, today I am pleased to say that I mean Rebecca. Castellani, who handles social media marketing and event planning for Quiet Corner Communications. She's joining us via the miracle of Skype. Uh, and David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic. So happy to have him on the nose. See, now that the nose is, you know, is ageographical, we can have anybody we want on the nose. Uh, we don't have to actually get them into a, a, a studio in Hartford. So, um, first of all, welcome. Uh, and second of all, so Rebecca, you know, when the news about uh, Rebecca is... You know, but a tender green shoot growing. She's the baby Groot uh, of uh, of the nose. Still? Uh, well, no, Sam Hattleman is younger than you are. But, um, yeah, Sam definitely yeah. unseated me recently. But, you know, when it, we saw the, the Diana Rigg news, I, I you know, I, I would have assumed, because I also know how you feel about fantasy and stuff like that, that you certainly would <laughs> have a relationship with Diana Rigg via Game of Thrones. But I was quite sure. surprised to see where you went right away. So tell us about that. Oh, yeah. So my mom was a huge Avengers fan growing up and actually named two kittens that she got, Emma and Steed. And uh, Steed was still alive when I was born and was my first real pet. So I grew up with a, a deep appreciation for Emma and Steed of the Avengers and watched the show as a kid. And then in middle school, I had a, a peer who was absolutely obsessed with the Avengers and we used to dress up and pretend to be them. And she was really into Honor Blackman and I was super into Diana Rigg and it was just wonderful. And I was then so tickled when she was cast as Lady, Lady Elena on Game of Thrones and she just 
took that role and turned it into everything that it wasn't in the book and chewed up every scene she was in. So I have nothing but warm and fuzzies for Diana Rigg, and I'm sorry she's left us. I also very much enjoyed her in that, uh, Colin shared this in our emails, in the Midsummer Night's Dream 1968 adaption, which I watched in high school for an English class, and I just think she's delightful. Really? That, yeah, that's the Peter Hall. David, have you ever yep. seen that, the, this thing? that It's got this well, incredible Not only cast. have I seen I've seen it about six or seven times. I. Uh... It's kind of great. It's hokey, obviously, but it's it's kind of wonderful. Well, it's, you know, the, there's this whole tradition. There was a tradition of staging Midsummer Night's Dream with the Mendelssohn music in the sort of romantic yes. Max Reinhardt movie, you know, fairies who are really gossamer. But in fact, the play, when you read it, everything is supposed to be rainy and messed up and muddy and weather. I mean, it's supposed yep. to be kind of global warming as a result of yep. these two fairies, tit Titania and Oberon, fighting. And uh, and Peter Hall had definitely created the muddiest Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, it's very, very funny and messy and slapsticky and and but but beautifully spoken. You know, that's that's the bottom line. Can you do all that and and and, you know, speak the verse? Right. So it's it's first of all, I just want to stick up for because I'll get an email from him. Maybe otherwise, Mark Lamos is extremely wet production of Midsummer oh, Night's okay. Dream many years ago. <laughs> had a lot of water on the stage. But, did, um, yeah. Alvin, but yes. Epstein's, Alvin Epstein's Yale one, uh, <clears throat> which had Meryl Streep uh, playing Helena, which uh, Diana Rigg played, was um, was also very messy right. and rough and and discordant and. So that's been the tradition lately. Right. So the, anyway, that play, the, the, the version that Rebecca was talking about, uh, it features Diana Rigg, Helen Mirren, Judy Dench, David Warner, yeah. Ian Holm. Who am I leaving out? I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. Uh, and of course, there most of them are quite younger and more dewy than we've become, speaking of dampness and moisture, than we have become accustomed to thinking of them. But also of recognizable. Them like, yes. I still see Helen Mirren now in all of her original roles, and I still see Diana Rigg. Like, both those women age so gloriously and were so true to themselves. Like, I don't think by today's beauty standards, either of those women would be celebrities or movie stars. So, David, setting aside whatever effect Mrs. Peel, Emma Peel, and the Avengers may have had on our 14-year-old selves, you know, there's <laughs> sort of a weird way in which, I mean, for one thing, when you do a little bit of research, uh, as, um, as Rebecca's kind of alluding to, Honor Blackman was in the female role for the first three seasons of the Avengers. Diana Riggs stepped in and I think maybe did just four and five. So she wasn't even the most frequently used female sidekick. She didn't wear the cat suit anywhere near as much as people think. In fact, she didn't like the cat suit. It wasn't comfortable uh, and uh, had uh, fashion designers working on, on other stuff for her to wear. But there is, I mean, she is iconic. There is, it, was it just that we hadn't ever seen anybody quite like her, a character quite like this one? Well, um, she was, I mean, you, you saw her through John Steed's, through Patrick McNee's eyes, right? You know, he was a, a hail fellow, well-met English men's club chap <laughs> with, a, with a bowler hat that he could bonk people over the head with. And he, he marveled at her poise and her elegance, her ability to banter with him, her ability to anticipate his needs. She was a male projection, let's face it, but she was always getting away from that. Mm -hmm. And and I think what we responded to, apart from the fashion, which I'll which I'll get to in a second, she was she was flip. I guess the word is insouciant, 
but um, but utterly dedicated. And she had so much more class than anyone she was investigating. And then those those cat suits. I think what was really interesting, you look at it from a design perspective. Um, it gave her kind of a boneless quality. It, she she seemed very supple, you know, without a brittle bone in her body, with all the parts sort of flowing into one another. And then those karate chops. It's like they gave it a sharp edge. It went slash across the the screen, the fist and the legs. And I think from a geometric perspective, I know this sounds insane, but I think sort of for that combination of that suppleness and those sharp angles and that sharp, witty, that poise, that dialogue, I think she emerged as uh, both an object, but, and let, let's face it, you know, she, she put down a lot of people, but she was also constantly getting bonked over the head and tied up and and tied to railroad tracks and but you know she would always get the upper hand and then those karate chops would come out again and i think it was really that that combination of her being both an object and then taking control um that that made her so fascinating to us all right now that that's semiotics you just heard the semiotics <laughs> Uh, of of Emma Peel, drugs. I don't know what. Right. Uh, she she. I mean, I, one of the things that I think we also liked about Mrs. Peel, uh, she was widowed. She often and she was very accomplished in many fields and was a scientist and a businesswoman and all kinds of other stuff in her backstory. And she often had a tone to her. I think to what both of our panelists are alluding to, as though she almost had some place else she could conceivably mm. be besides where she was you know there, there was some other interesting things she could also be doing anyway let's hear a little bit of her i think she's gazing into a crystal ball but not particularly sincerely right here what do you see madam peel i see you and i on the scene something lurking in the background yes it comes closer i see you attacked by two large... What? Things. I dispose of them? I do dispose of them. No, I do. So then, then there's that nice, nice confidence. And Rebecca, you know, when you talk about being a kid and having another... I, I hesitate to say possibly slightly nerdy friend uh, <laughs> geeking out about the Avengers, you know, decades after the fact. But, you know, there's yeah. a there's a central truth there, too, which is that the Avengers was one of those British products that they did very well that really worked two different ways, right? You could take it pretty seriously as an action adventure mystery quasi espionage kind of thing you know and then of course there was a whole other way to read it which was uh, a spoof of the entire genre I do remember there was one episode where they were battling some horrible gang who tied people up using old school ties old, you know neckties and and what one of them said well there are no ties like old school ties you know there are a lot of those kinds of jokes in it but Rebecca if you're just a kid and you want to see a, a strong woman character in an action role doing all the things David was just talking about it's a great way to go yeah i mean it's not as kooky as you know the parodies like get smart or something like that which i also grew up watching i was only allowed to watch tv land which is why i watched all these shows um but there was something about her that i always related to as being very strong and yes she had all that grace and poise but she also was very uncompromising and unsparing and you see glimmers of that with what she brought to lady elena like this using the male gaze to make a magnifying glass and burn it all down and her like subtle 
English way. And she's actually a Yorkshire girl, too. Like, she's right. not got this Queen's English accent in real life. So I think that she brings some of that rough-hewn Yorkshire energy to the roles that she took. And I, I always thought that she was a very strong female and ahead of her time in the way she portrayed that character. Yes, she I was wanna, accommodating. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, I just want to back up one one bit here to say that, you know, if you look at the early episodes of the Avengers, which are available in black and white on, you know, on video, um, it was a straight series and there wasn't a woman in it originally. And yeah, it Steve was, a, was, two a, guys. was a secondary character. And then Honor Blackman came in and it was still pretty straight. And it was when uh, Diana Rigg came in that they, that they went more pop with it. And, you know, yeah. Emma Peel, was uh, they wanted someone with male man appeal, M appeal. That was why she was named that. And um, so she literally was an object when she was brought in. But I think when she was on the show for those seasons, it really did uh, walk this wonderful line between being straight and being camp without ever quite spilling yeah. over. And unfortunately, when Diana Rigg left and <clears throat> Linda Thorson came in as, as Tara King, what you'll see is that the last two seasons were just camp. Um, yeah. It just completely lost. It lost that edge that 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 it had um, that you could possibly take it straight when um, uh, when Diana Rigg was there. I mean, she's the defining character of the show in my mind. I, I think when if you were to ask somebody on the street that didn't know much about it but was aware of the show, they would say Steed and Emma. They wouldn't say anybody else's name. And I think that's a testament to how strong her portrayal of this character was. When that so usually you, heard, usually you don't like the new they person. Were playing. They were no. playing a game. They were doing a little play together. They were performing yeah. with each other. They were. Well, it's clear she's I mean, a Shakespearean actress, even in yeah. something that's a little on the campier side. She's got that you know restraint and humor and natural timing that I just think that makes her so remarkable. Well, it is a remarkable career, and it's, it's a career that is pinned to a couple of big franchises on the, both the early and late ends, but there's a lot else in there. She actually, I think, has had four Tony nominations, a lot of work oh, on wow. Broadway, including Mrs. Higgins uh, just a few years ago in the revival of My and Fair she was Lady. Medea. I'm sorry I, I didn't see her Medea. I, I, I fear that she never really, though, in between those two things, found that, that one role that she you know the way helen mirren in um uh you know found uh you know, actually several times but yes. beginning with um <clears throat> with her tv series what am i called well she was suspect yeah jane yeah. tennant yeah, yeah no. jane tennant um i mean she never diana rigg never really escaped mrs peel and uh and i i think that's i think that's really too bad i mean she she remember she fronted um masterpiece theater for a while she mm -hmm. she you know she never um I, I don't know what it is she she never lost her poise in anything which is what we loved her for but also may have limited her in the public or in uh, film goers imaginations yeah i've I never wish, watched the um elizabeth taylor film of a little night music but uh i don't at least i don't oh. think i've watched it all the way through i'm sure it's pretty awful but diana no, Riga, she, she's good though she's, yeah diana she's charlotte the best thing yeah. in it she was a bond this. girl too yeah Let's she was a bond girl that. yeah um, all right. Well, we have to kind of transition from there. And the transition that I'm going to make is that, yes, uh, <laughs> Diana Riggs' true story is one of being uh, educated at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, no, often known as RADA, joining the Royal
Royal Shakespeare Company doing extensive work in theater, both in the West End of London and on Broadway and, and other places as well. Uh, a lot of training, uh, a lot of dramatic expertise, a lot of serious craft. The Kardashians, not so much. <laughs> Um, they too are facing an ending right now or embracing an ending right now. Their flagship series, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, is coming to an end. Uh, I'm sure all the spinoffs will go forever. We will never be Kardashian-less for the rest of human history. Uh, but they kind of skipped all the training and went straight for the cat suit, so to speak. So, um, the, first of all, I'm going to have Rebecca educate us a little bit or set the scene. Oh uh, David, well, you, you, you brought it on yourself by admitting to, I know, did, I to did. knowing I anything like I about it. I had them. to. I had to fall on my sword here for the Kardashians. <laughs> so, but before I do that, one of the questions that I, well, no, actually, you, you get us started and then I'll just have to remember to ask this, uh, this fundamental question. So, I well, mean, basically, feels, yeah, yeah. G- g- give us kind of either a defense or something of the Kardashians. I mean, I think it's hard to say anything about the Kardashians that people don't already know whether you watch the show or not. I mean, that is how deeply they've permeated our collective consciousness. I mean, they are everywhere, whether you choose to follow them and keep up with them on the television show or their various social media platforms or endeavors. They make the news all the time, whether it's the controversy is Kylie Jenner, the youngest billionaire. Is she a billionaire at all? What's Kanye up to? What's the late Kim's going to law school? I mean, they're always penetrating the cultural moments. And I think that is an enormous testament to the momager in chief, Kris Jenner, who has completely changed what reality TV means with Kardashians. So I'm very much a product of that early millennial, you know, the Hills, the real world, all of these things being on MTV and VH1. E was kind of just the throwaway trashy network that you'd kind of watch for red carpet stuff sometimes. And what Chris Jenner did with that show was take, you know, an ordinary life. And these people at the time were not super, super wealthy. They weren't, you know, top tier. They by no means were celebrities. Kim was famous for having a sex tape with Ray J and being Paris Hilton's tag along bestie and closet organizer. I mean, by no means people worth fame. And Chris Jenner turned the honestly, the monotony of their somewhat rich lives into a program that has turned into a billion-dollar empire. And now what started us, the spotlight on Kim, the spotlight has really shifted to the younger Kardashians. So a quick rundown of them. There are five central Kardashians, the oldest sister, Courtney, uh, the middle sister, Kim, who is the most famous, arguably, younger sister, Chloe, and then the two youngest daughters that are Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner's uh, children, Kendall and Kylie. And Kendall is a successful model and Kylie is a beauty guru. And that's really all I have for you, Colin. And I hope that's, it's enough. That was plenty. That was, I thought it was very impressive. I want it may, put me in mind. Somebody put up a clip on uh, Twitter this week. I guess, I guess apropos of this news of Billy Eichner talking to a woman on the street oh, and who's so good. Not the one that I sent you, not the Geppetto, uh, um, one, but the, yet, there's, there's yet another one. And, and it's a young woman who really does like the Kardashians and Billy Eichner being Billy Eichner can hold up his end of the conversation and they go cart through, through each one and she talks about why she either does or doesn't like that person uh, and he asks some follow-up questions some knowledgeable follow-up questions and the thing goes on for quite a long time it's at least three minutes long if not longer and and at the yeah. end he says 
okay, well, thank you for talking to me. I have to go blow my brains out now. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but, but one of the things that it makes me think, David, is, I mean, I think you and I would both subscribe to the idea that there's a certain amount of popular culture that you have to imbibe if you are going to fully participate in your civilization. I mean, when I, <laughs> when, when I discover that one of my coworkers at WNPR, I, I think I can even say it. I don't think she would mind. I discovered one day that Kion Wolf had never watched The Godfather. Uh, and I said, well, you, you kind of have to watch the two Godfather movies or you won't understand a lot of things. You know, They're, I mean, they provide a certain kind of context uh, and a set of references and things like that, that, you know, without them, you, you, you sort of miss a whole bunch of other connections that are hard to lay out. Now, the question would be, can the same be said of the Kardashians? Because David and I. Or would the Kardashians be an example of a piece of popular culture which you can know enough about in order to maybe understand what they are and what they symbolize without really having sat down and you know toiled through a few episodes? And I suppose, David, you and I are in a poor position to answer that question because we. Are you talking to me? I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. I am. You're, you're asking me a question. I'm asking you sort of. I, I guess the question is: Should you and I watch some Kardashian episodes so we will under that we will understand our culture that much better? Colin, these shows, all of them, they 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 make me really anxious. <laughs> I don't know why it's a, it's a, it's a kind of vertigo. I don't trust what I'm seeing as reality, yeah. but I don't trust it as fiction either. And I don't know That's what, what it is. To, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. Like I feel like data on Star Trek. It's like, I don't yes. understand this captain. Please explain it to me. Why, why are humans, you know, attracted <laughs> to this? I, I did go onto YouTube to watch some of Kim's, uh, uh, more uh, iconic do i use that word i guess i do oh, yeah. uh, moments uh and and there was one where she went into some food store or ice cream store and there were paps outside paparazzi outside clicking and she was complaining to these friends of hers about the lack of privacy everywhere she goes and meanwhile you know obviously she was leading her camera crew in there and they were photographing her and she was just talking about oh what it's like you can't get away from them you're always being photographed they're always going to be saying these things and i just I, i'm sorry my brain i i just couldn't process it there were too many like you have to be charlie kaufman i think or something to figure out what's going on there between truth and fiction so, Rebecca, I just I heard a little exclamation of yours, and I want to make sure that I understood it. Were you maybe saying that the show kind of exists as a thumb that runs itself down that knife edge between reality and fiction where you, you really can't you can't commit? Say a little bit more about that then. Yeah. So, I mean, you have your two classes of reality shows. You have stuff like the real world, which was you really did get the impression that these people were living and breathing in the same space and reacting in real time as people would. And that was kind of the model at the beginning, you know, Survivor. You think of these shows that have scripted elements but are really people's reactions. Big Brother is another one like that you could classify. But what Kris Jenner did was kind of took that and created buzz. So every time there was something that could ruin the Kardashians' careers, arguably a sex tape could ruin your career before it even began in Kim's case. And Kris found a storyline in that and turned it into something that would have – viewers coming back every single week to keep up with this family. And the way that she kept interest was by, you know, it's it's creative nonfiction. She was taking elements from their lives 
and mining them for views. And she was doing this before we really had an understanding of content and how to manipulate viewers. Wait, I mean, wait, wait. Every let, me time. Ask you, let me ask you a question. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. So did she put us, while simultaneously we were salaciously wanting to see her sex tape, I mean, we, I'm using uh, in the royal we, um, yeah. you know, she put us on her side trying to yes. suppress the tape and trying to manage the scandal. Well, so we she were never even really suppressed and outside. it. Yep. And that's what they've done consistently. When Kylie Jenner got pregnant, Kylie didn't want anyone to know she was pregnant. So they kept it completely under wraps. And then when it was finally announced, the circus around it, and that was all Chris. Chris knows exactly how to spin a story to get people wanting more and using their real life. I mean, and that's where it very much is. I think everything that happens to them like this is real. It's a lived experience. And yet Chris is mining it in a way that gets people coming back for more. I mean, I, I would argue that Chris Jenner is one of the smartest businesswomen in this country. I think Do that we, was one of the smartest, the, that may have been one of the smartest Kardashian conversations you'll see, you'll hear all week. But wait, let me we ask kinda, one, one final okay. question. One okay. final sure. Question. Does, does, David, you're hooked now. Yeah. No, you no, keep but up with the Kardashians. Like, I was just thinking about those paps outside the window. Are we, yeah. we feel, it makes us feel contempt and superior to those paps because we get to go yeah. into that store with them. Yep. So we are with brought him. And we get to feel that irritation that she, Yes. I mean, and that's what they did. And it makes this mega wealthy world in Calabasas that many of us will never experience. It made it accessible. It made you feel like you were a Kardashian, too. Lots of people will say that, oh, I watch them because they feel like my family, even though the people that are watching this show are not living in billion dollar homes in Calabasas. That's it. She made being wealthy and being vapid accessible in a way that people are addicted to. I mean, it is an addiction to the Kardashians. They're everywhere. And once you start realizing how much they've permeated everything. You will see and hear memes. They've invented words that have become part of, you know, the general discourse. It's it's remarkable. All right, in a so very we, different way than Diana Rigg is remarkable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, there's no disagreement there. Uh, so we have to go to a break here pretty soon. I just want to quickly say this is sort of part of my mission to get everybody in the world to watch the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. That this is another oh. subject that, Tim, that Tina Fey has had a lot of fun with. Uh, one of Kimmy's yes. early boyfriends is a Vietnamese undocumented immigrant who has learned English partly by watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. So every <laughs> once in a while, this young Vietnam Vietnamese man will turn and say, "Well, it's just like last night when Chloe." Was being such a bitch, Bible, uh, and, Bible, and, and and then towards the end in their their more recent interactive special, there was a little throwaway joke among the other one thousand throwaway jokes where Titus uh, says that he can't walk in the shoes that he's wearing because they're a special brand that was designed by Kanye West to wear when he's upstairs trying not to make any noise while they're filming, uh, keeping up with the Kardashians down below. Uh, this is what his shoes look like. <laughs> So anyway, we have to take a break right here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to you about this movie that you can see this weekend. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? No, I don't think so. Weird. Yeah. I think of ending things. 
What's the point in carrying on like this? I know what it is, where it's going. Jake is a nice guy, but it's not going anywhere. I've known this for a while now. Maybe it's human nature to keep going in the face of this knowledge. The alternative requires too much energy, decisiveness. People stay in unhealthy relationships because it's easier. Basic physics. An object in motion tends to stay in motion. People tend to stay in relationships past their expiration date. It's Newton's first law of emotion. Do you want to stop for a coffee or something? A, a snack? It's, it's going to get pretty farmy pretty fast oh, now. I'm, I'm fine. You sure? Mm -hmm. I want to spoil my appetite. All right, you're hearing the voices of the two leads of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Uh, this is the first movie ever released with two leads named Jesse. I'm making up that statistic. I don't know if it's really true or not, but you're hearing Jesse Buckley, uh, otherwise known as Carolyn Payne's body double. Uh, and uh, well, you're they hearing, do look alike. Oh, it's it's disconcerting. Uh, and Jesse Plemons uh, as the male lead. Uh, this is a very difficult movie to set up. Uh, let me just think of, <laughs> see if I can do that in some way. Uh, the the sounds you hear are of windshield wiper blades. Uh, this is a movie, much of which takes place inside a car, but not all of which uh, takes place inside a car. The premise, more or less, at the outset anyway, is that a couple, a relatively newly formed couple, six or seven weeks into their relationship, uh, are taking a drive just out for the evening to have dinner uh, with the male member of the couple's parents at the old farm. Um, however, things don't really stay on that path. They do get there. <laughs> They meet the parents, hilariously incarnated by Tony Collette and David Thewlis. Uh, but things after that begin to lose their moorings in time, in space, in even consistency of persona. Uh, and we're off on a very, very different kind of trip. So this uh, is all the brainchild of Charlie Coffin. As I said at the outset of the movie uh, of this show, uh, he has a very exciting oeuvre as a uh, screenwriter um, with being John Malkovich, an adaptation, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Syndectic in New York. Uh, and he has directed several of the movies that I just mentioned as well. This would be, uh, I think, his third full directorial effort. Um, and in addition to which, he used to be in a carpool with David Edelstein. So <laughs> I think I think we have to get that out of the way right away. Well, I, wait, hang on. I thought we... Uh... You know, I thought we carpooled to Hebrew school. Yeah. But now, as I was thinking back, it might have been drama school or something at the Hartford Stage Company. Mm -hmm. um, or that might not have been him. It might have been me. No, right. I think it was him. But, <laughs> I, um, but I see him short with a with a kind of afro. I guess a Jufro is what you call it. And um, I see him you know, receding into the distance and then I see him aging and then I see him getting senile and then I see him, you know, <laughs> bounding around drama class. But I know they, they knew him at Hall High. Um, and I bet people are listening right now who are classmates of his. <clears throat> I know, interestingly, he played the Woody Allen part and played against Sam. Uh, right. That's interesting because I think of him as Woody Allen uh, 2.0 or, or Woody, no, sorry, Woody Allen squared because you go... You go from Freud to Jung to Pirandello to Einstein. Um, Woody Allen never, never made the world an extension of his solipsistic self. When when he got serious, he 
he borrowed from Bergman or Fellini or Tennessee Williams. But Charlie Kaufman travels back and forth through time and space. Identities mutate and blur. It's all one uh, vertiginous consciousness. And, and there is this one lonely soul trapped in it crying out. Uh, yes, I think it was drama school. <laughs> All right. The the point is, riding around in a car with Charlie Coffin has become somewhat cooler uh, than it was, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So, um, Rebecca, I actually, I think I have no idea what you thought of this movie. So tell me what you thought of this movie. <laughs> I don't know if I know what I thought about this movie. Um, I really liked it. I can say that. I was deeply confused by it. And... I was deeply disoriented. It was uncanny, uh, confusing. I've said that. Um, There were moments where I felt like it was just an exercise in like grad school pretension. And there were other moments where I felt like it was a really wonderful depiction of the mind, uh, the mind that is ill. Um, It's hard to talk about without spoiling it. So I'm I'm trying to be very careful here with the words I choose. but I, I, I guess my best summation of my feeling is disoriented by it. It's one of those movies that the minute I stopped watching it, I actually needed to take a complete break from it. And then I watched the end of it again this morning. And it's it's haunting me a little bit. It definitely feels sticky and, and like it's it's changing some, some alchemy inside me. And I, I don't really have like a hard line for you. I don't have anything intelligent or succinct because in a way I think the movie works to subvert any expectation you have of it or any sort of review one could write on it. So the reviews I've read in it are similarly kind of struggle to capture the essence of what this film does to you. I guess I felt very similarly to how I felt at the end of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and sort of Anomalisa in a way. Anomalisa really messed me up for weeks after I watched that movie. <laughs> So I think that's kind of a Kaufman hallmark. But, yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm curious to see what you guys thought about it, whether well, you're as confused as I am. I, I think, first of all, a lot of the things that you said are really terrific and kind of fascinating about it. And that idea of, of subverting whatever premise it sets up at any given moment, it is prepared to pull the rug out from under that premise. Yeah. And, and so, David, you know, initially... For example, and this won't spoil. We're going to not spoil anything. We've sort of pledged not to do that. But you know, early I didn't on, pledge that. I didn't well, you pledge didn't. That. That's true. But there's sort of like you know, a nice little kind of setup and a joke. So they're this couple, and they, you know, they really don't know each other that well, but they've been dating for a while, and uh, uh, she seems to have all kinds of different skill sets and pending careers. But at one point, he says that he enjoys her poetry. Has she written anything? And she says yes, and he uh, begs her to recite it. And it's actually a poem, turns out to be a poem by somebody else. But anyway, it's a poem that goes on really, really a long time and is really, really kind of grim and hopeless uh, about life. Uh, and, and then at the end, he goes, I just feel like that's about me. But I mean, to me, that could happen in a Woody Allen movie. That scene could happen in a Woody Allen movie, David. It's just that. Charlie Coffin is not going to stay on that particular platform. He's going to leap to nine other platforms in a very short well, time. Well, you know, in, in anticipation of this discussion, uh, you know, I, I actually read the, the book by Ian Reid, the novel. And in some ways, um, you know, we're, we're talking about it as if it sprung whole from Charlie Kaufman's Jufro, but, but it, <sighs> it didn't. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's quite faithful in some ways to the book. But you know how a filmmaker will come along and uh, pare down a novel, cut the digressions, cut some of the extraneous philosophizing? 
Charlie Kaufman has embellished the novel and yeah. added philosophizing and added digressions. And at one point, action, like the plot at of the one book. Point, I at one this. point, he even the the female character and I, this I can spoil it because everybody knows. At one point, the female character literally, almost literally, transform not literally, but metaphorically transforms into Pauline Kale. Uh, smoking a cigarette in his car and recites a review from memory um, of uh, John Cassavetti's movie, A Woman Under the Influence, which Charlie Kaufman adores and Pauline Kael disliked. And so it becomes in that moment a dialogue uh, between Charlie Kaufman and a Charlie Kaufman critic. Now, one could say, does this have anything to do with the actual emotional thrust of the story? Um, and the answer is it does, but it's there's throwing up a lot of flack. There's a lot of fuzz being thrown up. And I, I feel like on some level, um, I actually have finally figured out what everything in it means. And I feel like I'm probably one of 10 people who has. Right. And that the movie really, that I could understand someone loathing this movie, just finding it inert and like, you know, really irritating. And it actually makes great sense. Um, whether or not it works, uh, I, I don't know. I love it, but uh, I don't love the ending at all. Uh, I, I love it. Oh, I love the ending. Oh, really? Well, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, we can't really talk about no, it. No, we can't but, talk about um, it. No. Yeah. <clears throat> but so in any case, um, I love the way Charlie Kaufman, that there are no walls in his technique in his either his film technique or in his writing walls are illusory they melt away he can take two or three points of behavior in a character and extrapolate until the end of time and he does mm. he goes to the mm -hmm. end of time or the sure end does. of a life I, know, I do. I do want to reach out and say something nice about the actors here. I mean, who are I think all really, really good. And I'm kind of a Jesse Buckley fan already, which I'll mention during the endorsements. But I mean, I, I really think that whatever the the scenes involving David Thewlis and Tony Collette look like on mm. the page, they just take that stuff and just just crank it. I mean, it, it, this is a weird and at times kind of scary and disconcerting segment of the movie, but it's also really really funny. I mean, if you if you're not going to laugh at them, you're probably not going to laugh at anything in the movie. You know, Rebecca, one thing I wanted to ask you because I, it's a feeling that I, I was aware of when the movie was over, and and you don't want to make everything kind of you should pardon the expression, on the nose about the moment that we're in. Mm -hmm. But even though there are a couple of conversations about viruses and whether viruses just want what everybody else wants, which is to kind of go on living and continue to, yeah. to be themselves. But, you know, there's a way in which this is a reality, a dream, a nightmare, a something that you can't get out of. You can't step out of. There's no out of this. Uh, the characters don't really have someplace else that they can go. Uh, and And I think that's very much... The way we feel too that you know everything that we've lived through over the last six months is just sort of a oh well I, I maybe i'll just get away from this by going to cape cod mm -hmm. or ireland or well no <laughs> you, you can't go anywhere else and and i i don't know if i'm artic articulating this very well but as i finished the movie and then walked my dog afterwards i thought yes it really is like i'm in somebody yeah. else's all-encompassing dream from which there's no exit. fever dream yeah 
Well, as she says, the female character, and she's her name is Lucy, but she's credited as only as a young woman. She is constantly repeating, I need to go home. I need to go home. That is like the main driving action is that she needs to, once this dinner is over, she needs to get back to wherever she lives and she needs to go home. And as the movie progresses, her frustration with that not happening mounts. And I think that that's kind of how you feel a little bit as the viewer. Like you're a little bit kind of taking captive by it. And there were moments, you know, when they're droning on and on and on in the car where I thought to myself, if this was any other movie, I would turn this off. Like I, I'm so drained by this conversation. It's so pretentious and just keeps going and going. I've been watching this for 20 minutes, but I was stuck and transfixed. And I think that it bleeds into your brain like that. And again, without giving too much away, I do think it is a, if you were to ask me what the movie means, I think it's a, a beautiful portrayal of how trapped one can feel in one's own mind and just sort of being washed around with all the pieces of information one's accumulated over a lifetime, all of the likes and dislikes and that just coming together in this bodily current that is unsetting and unmooring. And I, I think it, you know, shows that brilliantly. That's not a fun place to be, but <laughs> no. since he is, he, he certainly wants to punish us in the same way. You know, there's a, there's a tradition of movies and novels and stuff of going home to meet the parents of one's uh, husband yeah. or wife or, or lover. And this, again, it's like <clears throat> the Einstein version of that. You know, it's, it's that yeah. sort of scene squared. It's, it's carried on past the point of discomfort to when it just, it kind of goes off into, into the ether. But really mm. what we're, essentially what we're looking at is a guy who is ashamed, undermined, weirded out uh, on every level by his parents and yet feels connected to them in a way that we, we all do. I mean, it is it is going home. It is it is like H.P. Lovecraft. It is like the meteor fell, and you know you're in the, you're in the home of these monsters, but you are one of them too. And um, I think I, I think it's the the idea of presenting it from the woman's point of view is uh, I think um, let's just say it's a fake out. But uh, because as you gradually reassemble the pieces in your mind, you see that, you know, this guy is being eaten alive by his past, by his future, by relationships he's had, by relationships he has not had. Um, yeah. And that everything is, as, as Rebecca said, we are looking at one single consciousness uh, in, you know, uh, uh, there was a there was a Mario Bava movie retitled in English as twitch of the death nerve. And I hmm. see this as a brain, a twitch of the breath, a spasm of the death nerve. Right. I, I would lo love to have been at that branding meeting. What should we call the <laughs> branding? You know, this, this is such a great idea. Just uh, stay with me for a second. So I, I'll just say one last thing about this, which is, you know, this is a movie that is complicated and challenging and recherche in certain ways. I could also see this movie becoming really popular with mm -hmm. the kind of people in the moment that we're in. People of Rebecca Castellani's generation who really enjoy mining something and looking at yeah. something and, and checking out all 
all the references to to you know the poetry of Ava HD and the paintings of Ralph Albert Blakelock and and there's Wordsworth and then there's David Foster Wallace and then there's like a lot of stuff about Oklahoma and so <laughs> people who like that kind of stuff it, it's not loaded with Easter eggs it's kind of no it, it, it's I don't like know what you, yeah it is it's like, like a reading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland or something where you've got to unpack every single illusion to fully grasp the meaning but then you also don't right your reaction to the film like it can be it does not have to be predicated on knowing all these illusions i most of these went over my head and i only know them because i had to look them up afterwards right and i think that is it rewards the nerdy viewer that wants to dig deeper but you can also just watch it and get the experience and and feel what i think charlie coffin wants you to feel with knowing nothing so it's not pretentious in that regard it doesn't require knowledge going no. into it but i could just see it having a life um in, in yeah. a certain way with a certain kind of an audience that would really get off on it in a Has I, have either like of spotless you read mind and kind have either of you read and kind no Is, uh, no but i'm really interested after reading the synopsis it looks Dream of fascinating novel well he's um it, it's really talk about vertigo i mean it's all told from the point of view of of a critic um, of a very, very bad, uh, pretentious critic. Although, at, at, to be fair, at certain points he splits into many different characters. Uh, no spoiler. I couldn't possibly spoil the book. And he seems <laughs> loosely based on um, Richard Brody of The New Yorker, who hates Charlie Kaufman and apparently has pretty devastated Charlie Kaufman in, in his uh, criticisms of uh, uh, his solipsism and white privilege and and, and all the rest. And so, uh, and, and the, the thing about the, the character in this book, the protagonist is he hates Charlie Kaufman above all. So these, <laughs> these, these rants about Charlie Kaufman. And once again, we see a guy who is really struggling with, uh, you know, who is stuck in his head and does not know any way out except to literally dramatize the forces that are eating at him, the people who hate him. The new metafiction. Right. Okay, we absolutely have to stop here. But yes, Charlie Kaufman <laughs> is never very far from Charlie Kaufman's mind in, I think, any of these movies. All right, let's take a break and we'll come back. All right, time to say some thank yous, starting with Kat Pastor. She's the person in the studio making the whole thing happen. She just told us not to worry about something off the air. Uh, and I realized I, I never worry about stuff when Kat has it under control. So uh, that's an incredible gift uh, and a bounty. Uh, Jonathan McPants is the other person who won't be worrying because Kat is going to take care of whatever it was. But he is the person also who put together this episode, uh, the ideas, the clips, all the stuff that you hear. So thanks to the two of them. Wouldn't be possible without them. Uh, with us today, Rebecca Castellani and David Edelstein. Uh, we're going to do some recommendations right here. Rebecca, why don't you get us started? So my friends and I have been talking a lot recently about how we feel like the end of peak TV has happened and we're kind of living in the wake of that now. And I would like to make a pitch to say that we are in the, not maybe the beginning, but somewhat a little bit after that of peak documentary. Um, and I've got two for you that HBO has just recently put out that I just thoroughly enjoyed and one I'm still enjoying. The first is uh, no surprise here. All Be Gone in the Dark, the HBO documentary that uh, charts Michelle McNamara's best-selling book, All Be Gone in the Dark, about the catch for the Golden State Killer. 
And the documentary is just fantastic. It gives you another angle to the story that you didn't really get with the book, which is also fabulous. And I've recommended it a couple times on the show. But the documentary, it's only six parts. It's profound. I cried. Uh, Patton Oswalt is interviewed extensively. He was the husband of Michelle McNamara. And it, it's just a fantastic telling of her life and what a wonderful writer she was and a just incredible story. And the second one is airing currently on HBO, and that is called The Vow, and it is about the Nexium cult uh, spearheaded by Keith Rainier. Um, this is interesting less in a different way than I'll Be Gone in the Dark, but it, it definitely provides some wonderful insight into how somebody joins a cult, not necessarily why, like how somebody can get wrapped up in something that they don't realize is a cult. And Nexium in particular is interesting to me because it roped in so many actresses from Battlestar Galactica, which remains my favorite television <laughs> show of all time. So if you're interested in like seeing Nikki from Battlestar Galactica in a completely different light, uh, The Vow is fantastic. It is really interesting. Um, and both, again, are on HBO. So that's All Be Gone in the Dark, which is already aired, and uh, The Vow, which is currently airing. All right. They didn't get Mary McDonald. She's too strong for them. No, uh, of all course right. not. Of course not. She's the president. Oh, she so, started. Actually, you watch this. You might think that Mary McDonald is Nancy Salzman. <laughs> all right. So, David, you got a minute and a half, two minutes, something well, I'm like so that. glad you're talking about the second Battlestar Galactica, not the Lauren Green one. Oh, so, God, no. We don't really talk about was that one. It really one of the greatest series ever for television, apart from the uh, last episode, which don't get me started Ooh, on. We don't talk um, about that yes, either. No, yeah. um, I think it's interesting that... that uh, uh, I mean, beyond a recommendation, I just want to say today is September 11th, and this is the first September 11th that I can remember where I haven't thought that we are still living in the shadow of September 11th because hmm. something even more shadowy and oppressive has come our way. Actually, many shadows, many oppressive shadows. And so um, uh, I handle this the way I usually do, by escaping. <laughs> and uh, so I've just been watching a lot of... Uh, TV series, foreign, you know, policier, detective series. I finally caught up with The Bridge, the Danish-Swedish so collaboration, which is, has become one of my favorite shows. I binged watched all four seasons. And I'm watching now, I'm really excited about this show, British show that's on Showtime called We Hunt Together. Uh, it stars, it, it features two couples. One of them is are serial killers and one of them are detectives on the oh, cool. it's british on the um on, on their heels and they are they are interracial couples they are both uh a high strung and or psychotic woman with a relatively centered white woman with a relatively centered black male and there is a weird symmetry and but there is also um you just feel that there there's no clear one-to-one -one relationship between uh between action and and psychosis, action right. and character. We Everything have to stop right there because the show is over. But it, this, I'll just quickly say, uh, if you do wind up watching this movie, um, I, I'm thinking of ending things and you like Jesse Buckley, watch uh, Wild Rose. That was kind of her big debut oh my God, star yes. turn. She's amazing you think in it. she was a real country western singer? I, well, I, she was a real something. And, and if you still miss Jesse Buckley... Just drive by Carolyn Payne's house or something. I mean, they really are just like almost uh, twins for each other. If you love Jesse Plemons and you've never watched Friday Night Lights, uh, there is some kind of marathon going on on some channel right now. But it is just such a smart show about so many different things, including race and sex and, of course, football. Okay, I really have to go. Thanks to David. Thanks to Rebecca. <laughs>